Good morning. Last week in her excellent talk, our Shuso head monk Sengetsu Trisha McFarlane talked about how happy she was to see you. I'm happy too. <laughs> it's so nice to see you. It really is, isn't it? It's amazing. So important to be together. So, good morning. Yeah, today I want to talk about a um, couple of things. I, I want to talk about the Vimalakirti Sutra. Um, how many of you know what the Vimalakirti word means? Oh, so cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, it refers to Vimalakirti, who was a, a practitioner of old, and we have a scroll of him in that side room, which is why we call it the Vimalakirti room. So it's a long hanging. We used to have it right here. It used to hang behind the speakers because Vimalakirti is such an important representative of Mahayana. So he was so important. And that scroll, in that scroll, he has on a white hat and he's surrounded by Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and goddesses. And, but he's in the most uh, significant place. He's at the top because he was so awake and he's a, a layman, really enlightened layman. And his name means golden grain Tathagata. Those of you who have any association with San Francisco know that that's really funny because there's a product named golden grain spaghetti in, in San Francisco. Can't help it, sorry. So I will talk a little bit about Vimalakirti and the sutra and we will use it during the session, which is coming up in about 10 days. And also in two weeks, we will have the really important ceremony for our Shuso, our Shuso ceremony. And she will be um, answering questions about this practice period, about her practice. And she will answer from the heart of practice. So your questions will come from the heart of your practice. And she will answer from the heart of her practice. And there's a meeting, but there will be many of us in the room. It's a really important ceremony in everybody's training. Many people in this room have been through this training and this ceremony. Um, it's quite a marker in practice. So we hope, we, I hope you can all come. You hope to. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Please come to this great ceremony. We will have a Zoom, uh, uh, what you call portal also. The other thing I want to talk about is uh, mind snags. That's my, my title for today, things that snag the mind. But first, back to Vimalakirti. Um, he, this sutra, the story of Vimalakirti, the holy teaching of Vimalakirti, is one of the really significant sutras, scriptures in Mahayana. So Zen is part of the Mahayana. Mahayana means, Maha means big, Yana means vehicle. Zen and um, various other schools, uh, Don Mountain, Tibetan Buddhism, they're part of the Mahayana. It means the big vehicle teachings. And uh, the big vehicle teachings came about because um, Buddhist teachings needed to make it explicit that everyone can practice. Otherwise, uh, we get these little Here's a kind of a mind snag, actually. The idea that only under certain circumstances, in certain settings, certain people 
can make the effort to really wake up. Like only in remote, maybe even hermit-like monastic settings can people make the effort to wake up. So that has never been explicitly true. The, the, I mean, that's never been explicitly part of the teaching because the Buddha taught everybody and accepted the hospitality of many people. I don't know everybody, but he accepted a huge variety of, of uh, invitations to come and teach as he wandered around India, all sorts of people. And he established all sorts of little viharas, little monasteries, but he taught everybody and everybody could wake up. So Mahayana means that. It's a big vehicle. Everybody can get on. Suzuki Roshi would say, it's like a taxi. Everybody can get in and it will take you where you need to go. So I have images of everybody getting in that taxi too. <laughs> so the Vimalakirti Sutra is one of the sutras that's explicitly about the total access to practice for everyone. And a corollary to that is, so everybody can practice, everybody can really, really uh, wake up, access the source of reality and totally wake up. Everyone can do that. Corollary is every situation is an opportunity for that. Every situation is a teaching. You are completely surrounded right next to you, permeating you with practice opportunities. Everything is an opportunity to wake up. Every moment, every person you meet, every interaction you have, everything you see, hear, taste, smell, touch, and think about everything. So that's what Mahayana means. It's a big vehicle, and everything about it is the teaching. Everything will help you wake up. So uh, one way to encounter this is that um, it's not just passively waiting for you. So here it is, things are sitting around you waiting for you to take your attention and put it on it and use it and wake up. I, I suppose there's that too, you know, you have to, you could do that. But in other situations, um, reality is reaching out and grabbing you. It's trying to get our attention all the time. It's trying to say, here I am, realize me, do you see me? Here, here. So reality is reaching out and grabbing us all the time. And we, uh, we think that this is a, I mean, not we, I'll say, it's possible to think that this is a mental practice. I just have to take my mind and realize what's going on and then that'll be fine. Except right now I'm not in the mood, but I'll do it later. <laughs> Reality can wait till later. It's fine. It'll always be there. So <laughs> right now I have to think about other things. This is our mind, you know. I'm not thinking about reality now. I've got to think about taking the dog for a walk. Will you take the dog for a walk later? Because Vicky's way, thank you. <laughs> but things will reach out and grab us. And the physical world is uh, teaching us all the time. 
So Royce and Tricia, Tim and I right now, I think we're the only ones who have, um, have decided that we're going to wear these big robes and take the mindfulness practice of thinking about where they are all the time. So if you look at Royce or me or Tim or Tricia right now, we're basically wondering, are the robes arranged correctly? <laughs> okay. Okay, now I can think about reality. <laughs> but they also offer these other practice opportunities because they 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 whirl around and they snag on things. You know, they snag. And I was going through a door the other day. This is not an un infrequent occurrence in my life. And um, I felt this little tug and uh, I immediately stopped. You know, it was a gentle tug. I felt it. And it had one part of the robes had caught on one of those levers. So knobs, there are some benefits to knobs. It's like the robes slide off them more easily, but the levers, they catch. And, you know, this was reality reaching out to me. How are you going to relate to this opportunity? So I felt the gentle tug. And sometimes when you feel resistance, it's appropriate to pull a little harder, make a little more effort. But with these clothes, it, that's not ever the appropriate response. <laughs> so I had to explore where it was because there are many layers going on under here. And I found the, you know, I searched it around. I found what was hooked and backed off and continued on my way. So that's part of my life. You know, this is the physical world and the way it's always offering us a chance to relate. Always. And it's not going to get easier. It, in fact, as you're practiced in the sense that it's not going to go away, that the, rea- that the physical world is going to reach out and grab you and relate to you and present itself to you, the longer you practice, the deeper your practice gets, the more this will happen. And you will see these things. And maybe you'll see something happen in the mind, like um, the opposite of, I'm grateful for this opportunity to practice. You might see the opposite of that. Ed Brown, great Zen teacher, um, talked once, and great cook. So he wrote all these great books, Tassahara Bread Book, Tassahara Cooking, great Zen teacher also. And he had a temper. Some of us know him very well. And his way of relating to the world often, no judgment here, um, was to just get passionately angry. (laughs) And he would throw things in the kitchen. Right, Louise? You were there when he was throwing things in the kitchen. Yeah. Words. Mostly words. But sometimes pans. I've seen the pans. Um, Yeah, but he suffered so much. Um, And he talked in a Dharma talk a long time ago about how, I think all of you are maybe too young to know this, but refrigerators used to come with these little pockets that you put your eggs in. Do you remember your, maybe when you were children, you had these little egg pockets and frequently the eggs would stick in there. And he got so mad because his egg was not coming out because, and he said, it's, it's reality trying to get me. <laughs> so the egg broke. <laughs> but 
um, that's a, a fleeting moment of teaching. I I would suggest you know don't leap over that. Watch how often we think that the the physical world is out to get us. So I think we I've heard people say when they're driving on the highway they think. Why do they think it's the driver who's trying to cut them off and insult them and ruin their day? It's the car that's cutting them off. <laughs> you know, play with these, these situations where reality is trying to get to us. Um, I also have noticed in working with the physical world, which I have always really liked to do, that... Um, People have a lot of different ways of relating to the physical world. One, one convenient way is to ignore it and let somebody else deal with it. That, that'll work sometimes. <laughs> but another way is you get involved and all of us now have to deal with like small equipment, right? And putting things together, putting furniture together, assembling, everything comes with something you have to do to it. And it's not always easy to understand what they want you to do to it. And so um, sometimes you have to use gentleness to do the thing. And sometimes um, you have to use force. So sometimes gentleness is appropriate. Sometimes like you have to get a mallet. But um, actually that's not true. Gentleness is always appropriate, but sometimes you have to use more of your physical strength. And everybody, you can, these are all teachings for us. What is my relation to this object? Is it going to be gentle, putting a lot of my mind into it? Or is it going to be, I don't want to put my mind into this. It's not worthy of my mind and my attention. These are all reality reaching out for us. So I, I had a, uh, a mind snag too, which is what I've been thinking about for a couple of weeks now. Um, a situation happened and I was surprised at um, the situation and wanted to turn over, wanted to leap over into an attitude about it. So sometimes situations happen and I wanted to have an attitude about it. Mostly I wanted it to end. So if you can understand it, then the, the puzzle goes away. But we all have these. Let's see, what do I want to say about it? I realized even after a couple of weeks, I haven't exhausted the teaching potential of this situation. <laughs> <laughs> so it happened something, basically an offer was made to something the center and based on that offer I made a further offer and then the first part didn't happen so my second part has has to be um, uh, dealt with and um, I was really snagged on this I was snagged I had a hard time interpreting um, my feelings about it and one way to deal with it was to um, make some decision decide about the nature of the being involved, the other being, of course, I'm perfect, but <laughs> you know, I was snagged. Decide about the person and get, get the problem out of the way. But I knew I was snagged. I knew there was a teaching in here. 
So I continued to work with it and sit with it. Let time, time is really important in these situations. And then another part of it showed itself to me. And um, that was really helpful. And I thought, well, maybe this is it, but it isn't. It was that the snag went maybe a little untangled, but a um, little more. So it's been like two weeks. And so I'm going to have to give another lecture because it's still showing me things. One thing it showed me was that my sense of self definitely is involved. It's always involved in mind snags. And I had extended my sense of self to like the whole center. It's like if somebody um, allows their dog to poop on the very front lawn, I would take that person, which I don't. I want you to know. But if I were to, that's like having a sense of self go all the way out to the median strip, basically, my territory out there. So I haven't exhausted its potential. And one thing about these mind snags, this is like um, where Buddhist practice, where the rubber hits the road. These are things where you can really practice. This is reality coming to you to show you your mind. Um, one thing to do, and I frequently do this, and I frequently advise people to do it, is talk to your friends, talk to your mentors, talk it, talk it through. I chose not to do that for this situation, to, to this point anyway, because I, partly because I wanted to work with it, partly because I wasn't ready to have people tell me I was right. I didn't want to stop the process at that point. And you know how it is. If you're close to your friends, they'll say, oh, yeah, that was really, mm, and you should, mm, mm. I did, I wasn't ready for that. And I didn't want people to agree with me until, um, you know, I don't necessarily need people to agree with me. It's fun. It's nice. But you have to be, you have to even hold that lightly when people agree with you. It's like, okay, they agree with me. Good. That's part of reality. Even um, one of the things I really value about Tension Reb Anderson Roshi, and I value about our member, Yazan Dave Johnson, whose funeral will be on July 30, 30. We'll have the big, big funeral. He's still on the altar for 40, 49 more days. One thing I value about Tension Roshi and about Yazan is they don't necessarily agree with me very often. <laughs> so when agreement happened, it was very precious. Like, oh, okay, we've met on this. Things could still change, but the agreement was significant. And Yazan frequently in the old days was very argumentative in these settings. He would just speak up and say, well, in the question and answer period, he had that much restraint. But <laughs> then he would say, well, you said mind snags. Are you sure that's the right term for that? So it was very um, getting to the root of the matter was so important to him. So important to him. Same with Tension Roshi, with Reb, of course. So these are people who uh, I would take mind snags to. And I frequently took mind snags to Dave because he was always working with me in the buildings down there and here and working with me. So we were often together in a working situation. And that's when you often talk about practice issues. And he, he was very, very 
willing to disagree. So that's good. <laughs> the reason I bring up Vimalakirti is that's another thing he's famous for. He is a bodhisattva who um, was so devoted, is so devoted to the teaching of the non-dual that he would argue with all the great bodhisattvas. And this little sutra, which many of you now know because you're copying it with Trisha, it's a great sutra. It's, it's kind of hard because it starts, as many Mahayana sutras do, with a whole list of names and, and wonderful attributes. And I often people give up in the middle of like the 40th name. <laughs> but the names are, this morning as I was walking back over here and thinking about the problem that people have with these uh, outlandish names, I thought, you know, I love it when we go around and say the names here. So for these people, saying all the names of these bodhisattvas, which are difficult for us to pr pronounce, was encouraging for them. They like these names, and I like it too. So this Vimalakirti um, Sutra is about non-duality, the teaching of the non-dual, and how difficult it is to talk about. But first, I want to tell you something about why Vimalakirti is so important in this turn toward the Mahayana that took place a couple thousand years ago. It talks about him. He's a layman, but can I read you two paragraphs about his how he practices? He said, says, In order to be in harmony with people, he, Vimalakirti, associated with elders, with those of middle age, and with the young, yet always spoke in harmony with the Dharma. He engaged in all sorts of businesses, yet had no interest in profit or possessions. To train living beings, he would appear at crossroads and on street corners, and to protect them, he participated in government. To turn people away from the uh, incorrect teachings and to engage them in the Mahayana, he appeared among listeners and teachers of the Dharma. To develop children, he visited all the schools. To demonstrate the evils of desire, he even entered the brothels. Uh, he demonstrated the evils of desire, I want you to know. <laughs> to establish drunkards and correct mindfulness, he entered all the cabarets. <laughs> He was honored as the businessman among businessmen because he demonstrated the priority of the Dharma. He was honored as the landlord among landlords because he renounced the aggressiveness of ownership. He was honored as the warrior among warriors because he cultivated endurance, determination, and fortitude. He was honored as the aristocrat among aristocrats because he suppressed pride, vanity, and arrogance. He was honored as the official among officials because he regulated the functions of government according to the Dharma. He was honored as the prince of princes because he revered their attachment to Roy because, oh, he reversed, sorry. He was honored as the prince of princes because he reversed their attachment to royal pleasures and sovereign power. So this is about Vimalakirti, but it's also about the way we see people. We see kind and honest businessmen and officials and government people. Those are bodhisattvas. That's reality. When we see people behaving well, teachers, these are bodhisattvas in action. So 
praise to Vimalakirti. And then in this sutra, there's one other part of it I want to read to you. He, um, it's really a funny sutra too, because he manifests, he decides, he's sitting in his little palace and decides to manifest as a sick person because the Buddha, he knows, he notices that none of the Bodhisattva is coming around to visit him anymore because he always beats them in, in Dharma combat. So he decides to manifest mm-hmm. as sick because part of one of the main Buddhist principles is to call on people who are sick. So he knows that either the Buddha or some of his bodhisattvas will come and call on him. And he manifests, he's lying in a sick bed and Buddha sees that he's sick and says to various bodhisattvas, Maite, Vimalakirti is sick, would you go visit him? Oh no, Buddha, I can't. And then Maite recounts the last conversation that she had with Vimalakirti and therefore I'm not going to visit him. <laughs> and then he says, well, Sengetsu, you would you go visit Vimalakirti? Oh no, Buddha, I can't because this is what we talked about the last time. This is the level of dualism he exposed in me. And then Reverend goes on, would you go, oh no, this is what happened when I was with him. And each of these descriptions is so interesting and it's a teaching in itself. So nobody will go, many, many conversations. And finally, Manjushri, we have Manjushri in the Zendo. He's got a sword because he cuts through duality. Manjushri agrees to go down and see the sick Vimalakirti. So he says, how are you? (laughs) And this is what Vimalakirti basically says. Oh, because Manjushri went, all the rest thought, well, they could go behind him and listen. So, (laughs) (laughs) So they all came down and Vimalakirti magically increased the size of the room so they could all fit in. And then he said... It was a teaching moment. My cushion was collapsing. So Vimalakirti gives them a lesson in sickness. Friends, this body is so impermanent, fragile, unworthy of confidence, and feeble. It is so insubstantial, perishable, short-lived, painful, filled with diseases, and subject to change. Thus, my friends, as this body is only a vessel of many sicknesses, wise people do not rely on it. This body is like a ball of foam, unable to bear any pressure. It is like a water bubble, not remaining very long. It is like a mirage, born from the appetites of the passions. It is like the trunk of the banana tree, having no core. Alas, this body is like a machine, a nexus of bones and tendons, It is like a magical illusion consisting of falsifications. It is like a dream being an unreal vision. It is like a reflection being the image of former actions. It is like an echo. I I renounce my cushion. (laughs) It is like an echo being dependent on conditioning. It is like a cloud being characterized by turbulence and dissolution. It is like a flash of lightning being unstable and decaying every moment. The body is ownerless being the product of a variety of conditions. And so on. 
But this first phrase, the first sentence, this body is impermanent, fragile, unreliable, and feeble. This is, this is, this is our actual body, impermanent, fragile, unreliable, and feeble. This is our actual body. And this is the actual body of our, our world, too. So being able to really accept that and see it all the time is part of what gives strength to our practice. We're not, when we have these mind snags, not trying to harden and come up with always a response. We're trying to be fragile, impermanent, and allow ourselves to be um, flexible in response to reality coming at us all the time. So, as I said about the physical world, the deeper in practice you go, the more of these opportunities you will have, the more mind snags you will find. Maybe they'll get more subtle, but they'll get more um, uh, luminous also. And all the things that are reaching out to remind us of reality, bring us into our physical relation with reality, they also will just become unceasing, unceasing. And when the mind needs a break, okay, I'm not thinking about reality right now. Oh, yeah, that's reality too. Okay, I can rest there. <laughs>